while we were just singing there about with every breath I want to follow Jesus and we were talking about how he renews us and the main way uh, that the Lord does that is through uh, his word at work in our lives and we're going to look at his word now and learn together uh, how we can follow Jesus uh, through the book of Nehemiah. So if you turn to Nehemiah, uh, we're in chapter 2 this evening uh, and we're going to uh, really look at verses uh, 10 down to the end of the chapter, uh, uh, verse 20. But as I read, I'm going to begin at verse 9, uh, just because it gives a good uh, context uh, for, uh, for the rest of the chapter. So, Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, from verse 9, let's listen to uh, God's word speaking to us. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, Because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is God's word. Well, 
Well, so far in Nehemiah, uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah has seen the need that is in Jerusalem. Uh, he has sought the Lord for what to do. He has seized the opportunity from the king in order to go to Jerusalem and help with the rebuilding work. And as we come to this section of chapter 2, he arrives in Jerusalem and he realizes he has a job to do. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had the experience of being given a task or a job or you have something to do and it just is too big even to contemplate when you look at it. Uh, Perhaps um, some of you have had to tidy a room and you go into the room, like your teenager's bedroom perhaps, and you look at the room and you think, I don't even know where to start. Uh, We had an experience like that um, when we had to clear out a relative's house. There was 85 years worth of stuff all through this house and we looked in every room and we thought, I don't even know where to begin. Perhaps you found that with a piece of homework you've had, a responsibility at work, or even a responsibility in the church that you've been given, and you look at the task and you think, I don't even know where to begin. We all at times understand what that feels like, don't we? And that's the kind of feeling Nehemiah no doubt would have felt as he comes to Jerusalem. And really, it's how we can feel when we are called, as we are, by God, to be involved in serving in the work of his building of his church. We may have good intentions of being involved, but we may be asking, where do I even begin? That's what this passage in Nehemiah chapter 2 is really about. Nehemiah encourages us with how to uh, set about the work. Now, this book uh, is about the work of building the walls in Jerusalem. But in the New Testament, we know that God is building his church. And Nehemiah is in a specific uh, time, about 430 BC, in a specific place in Jerusalem. But the principles here are timeless principles. And we're going to see how Nehemiah sets about the work in Jerusalem and what we can learn about how we set about the work in the church. And there are four steps. And the first step is a quiet appearance. A quiet appearance. Uh, We notice in verse 9, Nehemiah leaves for Jerusalem and uh, with all the king's horses and all the king's men. And he has his letters from the king to go. But in verse 10 there are hints of trouble to come. Uh, Notice in verse 10, there is trouble on the way because Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, they hear what's going on and they are really disturbed. The word disturbed there means they are really, really angry and upset about what is going on. And they are feeling this way because someone has come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, we, I can understand how they feel if we can understand where they come from, who they are. Well, we read that Sanballat, uh, he is uh, the Horonite, and it's hard to know exactly where Horon was, but what we do know from historical records is that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. 
And the Samaritans were living in what was the northern kingdom of Israel. And after Israel had been uh, wiped out by the Assyrians, the Assyrians allowed many people to go live in the land. And those foreigners intermingled with the remaining Jewish people and their children were then uh, mixed up and the Samaritans were not uh, Jews in the sense that they had married other nations and had children with them. And they did not get on with the Jews. They were sworn enemies. And we see this in the New Testament with, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The shock of that parable is that a Samaritan can be good and that a Samaritan would even love a Jewish person. We see in the New Testament, for example, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, it's a shocking thing that he's speaking to a woman, but he's speaking to a Samaritan woman, which makes it all the more surprising. And so Sanballat was one of the Samaritans who was an enemy of the Jews. And Tobiah, well, he was an, likely an Ammonite official, And the Ammonites throughout the scriptures have always been traditional enemies of Israel. And these men appear more later, but it puts into context what's going on around uh, uh, Judah as Nehemiah is going there. And it gives us some understanding as to what he does next. Because notice uh, in verses, uh, well, verse 11, first of all, he goes to Jerusalem very quietly. He doesn't come in uh, in a fanfare, uh, like if you've, if you've seen the film uh, Aladdin, when, uh, when Aladdin becomes Prince Ali and he has a song and a dance as he comes in on all the camels and horses. That's not how Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. He comes in and it says he, he just stays there three days before he does anything. It says, after I stayed there three days, I set out. So he arrives... And he doesn't do anything for three days. That's an odd way, if you think about it, to, to set about the work. He's, he's excited about going to Jerusalem. He's been wanting to do this. He's been looking for the opportunity. And when he shows up, he sits for three days. Why does he do that? Well, we're not told exactly why he does that. Um, we know that Ezra... In Ezra chapter 8 and verse 32, when he went to Jerusalem in his day, he also stopped for three days upon arrival. Uh, Perhaps likely he was tired from his journey. It was about 800 miles to get to Jerusalem. It wasn't just a walk down the village. Uh, Perhaps he was seeing family. Perhaps he was obtaining information about what was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, we, We don't know. But one thing that we do need to understand and note is that he's not in a rush. He's not hurrying. He's not uh, running around like, a, like the proverbial headless chicken, figuring out what's going to go on. He's calm and in control. And isn't that so unlike how often we set about doing pretty much anything? Our lives are so often in such a rush and such a hurry that we don't stop to think about what we're doing and we don't take time to rest. And that's important that we do. Now, it is right that we are busy and it is right that we have work to do, but we also have to have times when we stop and we refresh. Only God never slumbers nor sleeps. 
Even Jesus took a rest. God runs the world. We don't. We rely on him, not on ourselves. Nehemiah was not in a rush. But in verse 12, after those three days, he does start his work. And it's a strange way of working because it's so quiet. Because he doesn't only slow down, not going 100 miles an hour, but he waits for three days. He is literally quiet in how he goes about his work. Look at verse 12. Notice the secretiveness in verse 12. He sets out during the night with a few others. So it's at night time. Why is it at night time? Because he can go in secret at night. It's not in the daytime and everyone would see him and wonder what he's doing. He sets out with a few others, not a, a massive uh, entourage. He hasn't told anybody what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he hadn't, he hadn't told anybody except, of course, the, the few uh, that went with him. Uh, and he sets out on one mount. So he had the mount, the, the, that would have been probably a mule, but nobody else did. Now that wasn't because Nehemiah was a bit lazy and he wanted to have a mount and let everyone else walk. The point here was that if he was ever caught, the one on the mount was the one in charge. But only one mount, because otherwise there'd be lots of noise. Why the secretiveness? Well, there's two probable reasons. Number one, in verse 10, there are enemies about God's work. If they find out what's going, going to happen, they most likely would want to put a stop to it before it even begins. And so he wants to keep those enemies uninformed about his work before, while he's figuring out what the work is going to be. And the second reason uh, that he possibly was being secretive was that he wants to see what needs to be done before he goes about announcing what needs to be done. It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? And dishonoring to God, really, for him to announce this work that's going to be done to everybody and then realize, I don't really know how we're going to do it and not have any ideas or any plans. And there is good principles for us as we set about working in the church. The work that we do should not be work that we want to just shout from the rooftops about what we are doing. We shouldn't be working so that we can get the applause. Because if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we a little bit more like Prince Ali coming in than the quiet, unassuming, behind-the-scenes work that Nehemiah was doing here? Of course, shout of Jesus from the rooftops, but not about how wonderful you are. But also, we can learn from Nehemiah here about being careful not to announce what we will do or what should be done in the church without first thinking and knowing about what is needed and what it takes. It lacks integrity to be saying all the things you're going to do if then you say you're going to do them but find you can't. We should be wise in how we act and how we talk and not be unthinking. 
And Nehemiah was like this because of his motivation. Look again at verse 12. He says that God had put in my heart what he was going to do for Jerusalem. It was God's work. It was God who was going to get the glory, not Nehemiah. Nehemiah did not want God's name to be dishonored. And so he went about the work quietly and in a way that would not dishonor God's name. Now we'll see there is a time where we need to speak up. But we also need to have a time of quiet. And of course, Jesus Christ is our example in this, isn't he? He had a humble birth. Okay, it was announced by angels, of course. Uh, but that was two shepherds in a field, not to uh, the, the whole world in that way. He quietly obeyed his parents until about 30 years of age he began his ministry. And as you read through the Gospels, what does Jesus often tell people not to do? Isn't it? Often he tells them, don't tell people what I've done. Why? So that they don't misunderstand who he is and what he has come for. Jesus came to bring glory to his Father and to do his Father's will. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 53 and verse 2 says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus quite literally had a quiet appearance. Well, so Nehemiah comes into Jerusalem quietly and secretively. He sees, uh, uh, he, he calls his little group together and they begin to go and see what needs to be done. And the second thing that we see is a methodical approach. In verses 13 to 15, Nehemiah examines the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. He doesn't do a full uh, full circuit all the way around the city. Uh, he seems to go to a particular area to the south of it. But he goes from place to place examining each part of the wall or the gates where he is. And if you notice in verse 14, the destruction there uh, is so bad, it says at the end, there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So he turns back and goes a different way. What we see here is he goes from place to place around this wall is a careful examination of what needs to be done in Jerusalem. He does it methodically, wall, uh, gate to gate, and looking at the wall as he goes along. Now again, for us, we can't know, like Nehemiah wouldn't have known, everything about the future. We can't know the outcome of any endeavors we can do. Things may fail, and sometimes that's okay. But we shouldn't start work in any way if we know absolutely nothing about it. We do need to count the cost before jumping in. That's what Jesus was telling us in Luke chapter 14. Jesus relates this to following him, but nevertheless, we need to count the cost of the work we do for him too. So for example, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost 
to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And he, he then goes on to talk about a king. But at the end he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. There is a counting of the cost. Now Jesus' point here is not, don't give up everything. What he's saying is, you better be aware that that's what I ask for. I expect nothing less. And in our service for the church, we need to consider how much time, how much energy, how much investment in people's lives and so on need to be done in what we do before we jump in. Now, as I said, you're never going to know everything. Things will come in and surprise you. Those things come from the Lord. But we should think about those things. That's not to say we should therefore consider it and always say no. Sometimes it's right to say no. But it is to say we need to approach our service thoughtfully so that we can go in with open eyes and with integrity. Again, isn't Christ our example in this? He didn't come to this earth and grow up and then not have a clue what he was supposed to do. If you look at his life, he was always headed towards the cross and he knew it, didn't he? There was a methodical approach. Thirdly, there is a passionate appeal. So he was quiet at the beginning, but when he had figured out what needed to be done, Nehemiah passionately appeals to people to help him in his work. So the investigation is done, but in verse 16, nobody really knows why he's arrived. It says uh, in verse 16, the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. So here he comes into Jerusalem and people haven't got a clue why he's even there. They might have known who he was, but not why he has come. And so Nehemiah gathers together uh, everyone in Jerusalem, really. In verse 16, you see a bunch of titles there, uh, priests, nobles, and officials. They're like the, 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 kind of the leaders. And then in uh, the end of verse 16, it says, and any others who would be doing the work. So everyone who was going to be involved in this work in Jerusalem was gathered together so that Nehemiah could tell them what they need to be doing. And in verse 17, he passionately pleads with them to join in the work. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, it's interesting here that he says to them, you see, you see, because they had been there, some of them, for decades. So why haven't they done anything before? It's a little bit like um, if you uh, have a mark uh, on your, a wall in your home that you've just gotten used to it being there and have done nothing about it. Uh, some of you may have those kind of marks in your home. You just get used to it being there. And you might have someone come to your house and they're looking at the mark thinking, that's a very strange mark. And they might say something to you and you might be a bit embarrassed. But you don't ever notice it because, well, it's always there. 
And that can happen in our Christian lives, can't it? We can have sin that needs dealing with that we are just used to. Until someone comes and points that and says, don't you see? Don't you see that this is wrong in your life? There can be things in church that need to be done that just always need to be done. And they don't get done. And we just get used to it. That can happen, can't it? Sometimes we need someone to come to us and say, don't you see the trouble you are in or we are in? Well, Nehemiah is that man. He points out the problem, but thankfully he also gives a solution and a motivation. So the problem is, don't you see, Jerusalem's in ruins. It seems obvious, but I'm going to spell it out to you again. It's ruined, the gates are burned with fire, the walls are broken down. But here's the solution. Look at the middle of verse 17. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So the solution is, come, come and build the wall with me. Come and help. Let's, let's get on with this work. It's been like this for decades. Let's do this. And then he gives two motivations for them to be involved. Number one, we will no longer be in disgrace, he says. In other words, this is for the glory of God. Come on. And when we're, we're talking about these kinds of problems, whether it be sin in your life or a need in the church that needs work, it's for the glory of God that we deal with these things, isn't it? But the second motivation he gives is in the beginning of verse 18. He gives his testimony. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. In other words, uh, he read them Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. He told them about when he went to the king and how this king gave him letters and, a, and armed men to go with him and permission to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had been stopped all those years before. He'd said, look at what God has done already. Don't you think he will also do this again and help us in rebuilding the wall? And that's a motivation for us too. We can look back through the history of the church, through the history of our own church, through our own testimony, and we can say, can't you see how God has helped us? Surely he will help us again. And there's a motivation to, to get on with the work. And his passionate appeal certainly worked, didn't it? Look at the end of verse 18. They replied, and the implication is all of them, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now the response from the people here is a, a real miracle. Just as much as Artaxerxes, when, uh, letting him go to Jerusalem. When you think all those years, those decades of people not working on the wall, and all of a sudden, with effectively one very short sermon, everybody gets going. That's a work of the Spirit, isn't it, in the lives of these people? The people have done no work for decades, and now they are mobilized, and they get on with the work. Uh, I was thinking a little bit like uh, when, when Dunkirk happened, and the, 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 the appeal went out on the radio, didn't it, for the ships to go. 
And they didn't know how many were going to go, but people mobilized and sent the ships over and brought the men home. And wouldn't it be wonderful if as one body we got serious about giving ourselves in dedication to the kingdom of God and so each member is mobilized no matter the cost and we follow Jesus and do the work that he's called us to do. I pray that that would be the case. It's a passionate appeal. And really that's what preaching is, isn't it? Preaching is a passionate appeal to follow Jesus Christ. And I pray that it always would be from this pulpit, preaching would be a passionate appeal to follow Christ. Preaching often states the obvious, just like Nehemiah did, especially our sin. Do you ever feel like a a sermon's directed at you? It isn't, purposely, but the Spirit does that, doesn't he? Preaching should motivate us to to serve for the glory of God and the love of Jesus that compels us to go for it. But in addition to the preaching, we should be encouraging each other. Notice in verse 18, they said to each other, they replied, let us start rebuilding. Let us start. It was a, a community thing, wasn't it? It wasn't all just Nehemiah. Nehemiah preached, but then they turned to each other and they said, Let us, let's go for it. Come on, let's do this. Have you heard what he said? What a wonderful response to the passionate appeal of Nehemiah. And will you heed the call to fulfill the mandate God has given you to do good works for his kingdom? So, There is the quiet appearance, the methodical approach, a passionate appeal. But it isn't all plain sailing for these Israelites in Jerusalem. Because finally we have to see that there is a courageous answer. Because in verse 19, there is opposition straight away. Uh, So fast it comes, in fact, there probably were informers in Jerusalem that ran to the enemy. In verse 19, we read again of Sanballat, Tobiah, and a new man, Geshem the Arab. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, we've heard of. Uh, Sanballat uh, was from the north in um, Samaria. Uh, uh, Tobiah would have been uh, to the east where the Ammonites were. But the Arabs at the time were ruling in Edom to the south. And so we can see uh, the enemies of Israel beginning to surround them. And we'll see uh, a bit later on in chapter 5 that people from the west also join in uh, the uh, attack. And at this point, opposition arrives. And, 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 And brothers and sisters, when we want to do anything for God, there is an enemy that wants to put a stop to that work. We can be as enthusiastic as anything, but the enemy wants to sap that away and stop us from working in any hundreds hundreds of ways. And here, we see the work begin with enthusiasm. Let's start rebuilding in the very next verse. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, What do they do? They mocked and ridiculed us. So the the opposition comes initially with mockery 
uh, and ridicule. So they say, what is this you are doing? That's not a, a genuine inquiry. They're not walking up to them and saying, what is this you're doing? This is mockery. What do you think you're doing? You think this is going to be successful? Ha! That's the kind of thing they're saying. And the last bit, are you rebelling against the king? It is kind of mockery, but also it's reminding them of Ezra chapter 4. Don't you remember the last people that started this work? They stopped because we made them stop. If we follow Jesus Christ, and following him means serving him, which it does, we will face opposition. Working for God is not for the faint-hearted. We can face opposition from all sorts of places, can't we? Our families may oppose us. Our work colleagues may oppose us. If you go to school and acknowledge Christ and follow him, you will be opposed through this kind of mockery and ridicule. This happens all the time, all over the world, doesn't it? And it can even happen in the church itself. And as a warning here, I would give from these opponents, part of the reason that they were so angry about what was going on was because they saw this area as their own. And sometimes when... Uh, Christians begin to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and are enthusiastic and passionate about it, can't we sometimes see that as either a threat or we're embarrassed ourselves at our lack of enthusiasm that we can become opponents to what's going on in the church? Be very careful that you are not, through jealousy or just any kind of felt injustice, so failing, if, be careful not to fail to support a brother or sister who is serving our Savior faithfully. But when we are opposed, what should we do? Well, notice the courage of Nehemiah in verse 20. He doesn't hide away. He stands up to the opposition. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even, at this point, do what I would have done, pull out my letters from Artaxerxes. He points to God. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. Because Nehemiah knows that those opponents are opposing God. And God is not going to stand Opposition. Opposition will come, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing will succeed against God's plans. Opposition is hard, but it will always, in the end, fail. Because God will always succeed. And Nehemiah knows this, and so he just points them to his God. He sends them to God. The God of heaven will give us success. He's saying to them, you, you can ridicule us all you want. You can write to our Artaxerxes. You can do anything. But if God is in this work, you are going to be able to do nothing to stop it. 
And as well as trusting in God, pointing to him, Nehemiah courageously spells out the consequences of their opposition. Look at the next part of verse 20. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This indicates that they thought they did have a claim, which was one of the reasons why they thought Nehemiah was encroaching on their territory. And in one sense, Nehemiah is is giving them a, a legal point. You've got no legal right to this. You can't stop the work. Uh, I have got letters to prove it. He doesn't necessarily pull them out, as I've said, but he, he, legally, he's absolutely right here. But there's a bigger point than just a legal technicality here. Not having a share in Jerusalem means you have no share in the kingdom of God. That's what it means. Those who oppose God are excluded from the blessings of the new Jerusalem that is being built. And opponents of God are not only uh, mockers, uh, but they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but all of them who dishonor Jesus Christ will face God's judgment. And in fact, opponents of God are not only those who violently oppose or mockingly oppose. Really, an opponent of, of Jesus Christ is anyone who does not submit to Jesus Christ. Anyone who does not come to him and seek his forgiveness for their sins. All who reject him. And every single person who rejects Jesus Christ as their king has no share in the kingdom of God. Well, it took courage, didn't it, for Nehemiah to take a stand against these enemies. But so must we, with courage, Stand against those who stand against the work of God. And let's pray for one another in this regard. Let's let's pray for our young people to be willing to confess the name of Jesus in school where it's really hard to do so. Let's pray for those in the workplace to live lives that point to Jesus even when that conflicts with what the workplace may be telling them to do. Let's pray that we'll be willing to speak the truth to our families, even if it means they may disown us. Let's pray we have courage like Nehemiah had courage. Because it's not for the faint-hearted to follow Jesus. Jesus uh, said these words in John 15. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And Jesus stood against his enemies who were, in the end, defeated at the cross and resurrection. And one day, every knee will bow before him. When Nehemiah saw the walls of Jerusalem in this chapter, he sees a heap of ruins. Now, I don't want to describe our church as a heap of ruins. But nevertheless, there is, isn't there, work to be done to reach our community for Christ, to build one another up in the faith as we're called to do. As Nehemiah examined the walls, he saw that there was great work that needed doing. There was enough rubble for everyone. And the same is true today. So each one of us, let us quietly, 
methodically, passionately, and courageously to the glory of Jesus Christ, say what they said in chapter 18. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Maybe some of you have inquiries about how to be involved. If that's the case, I encourage you to speak to one of the elders. We'd love to to help you uh, in your service of Jesus in the church. But let's get involved in this wonderful, amazing work, a work that lasts forever, the kingdom of God. Well, our final song uh, is a song of commitment. Uh, We're going to sing, O Lord, who came from realms above. Let's stand together as we sing and commit ourselves again to following our Lord Jesus Christ.